This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, sometimes on the podcast, we try to cover issues which aren't in the news agenda. This week, we thought we'd cover something which turned out to be a rather too live a news story. In a moment, you'll hear us discussing what is happening in Ireland. But just after we finished recording, it was announced that Francis Fitzgerald, the Irish Deputy PM, was going to resign. So, if in the course of the next 10 minutes, anybody sounds like they're suggesting she definitely won't resign, please just ignore that. Disclaimer over. This week, I'm joined by Times columnist Hugo Rifkin, who worries that the Tories are kitten killers. Anne Ashworth, Times money editor, warns that we are all still losing interest. But first, Patrick Maguire, political reporter with the Times, who tries to explain the troubles in Ireland. An ill-advised snap election, a minority government and Brussels talks hanging in the balance. Remind you of anyone? As the Irish administration heads for collapse, Leo Varadkar's luck might soon run out. If neither Taoiseach nor the opposition blink today... Ireland could be headed for a Christmas election and London an even bigger Brexit headache. So, Patrick, what you're going to do is give us a crash course in Irish politics, which should be easy to follow because they speak English, and yet they don't speak English. Every every name, party name, job title is in Gaelic, and nobody can understand what's going on. So, to start at the very beginning, Leo Varadkar. is the Taoiseach. He's the Prime Minister. He's the Prime Minister. And he's the leader of a party called Fianna Gael. And why has he got particular problems at home at the moment? As, it, as was the case with Hillary Clinton, it's all about uh, a woman's emails. Francis Fitzgerald, who is his deputy, the Tornister, uh, is, and this is very arcane, but I'll try and explain in a sentence. Uh, this all goes back to a few years ago when the Garda, the Irish police force, uh, were accused of, well, they did, they falsified breathalyzer tests and there was one whistleblower a man called Maurice McCabe who came out and said you know this is uh, not on uh, and then there was a campaign in the Irish Department of Justice and uh, the police to discredit Maurice McCabe the whistleblower and the question now is what did Francis Fitzgerald who is also the Minister of Justice or, or at least was at the time what does she know and when and emails over the past few days have come out uh, to confirm that she was aware of an ag- aggressive uh, in inverted commas, campaign to discredit Maurice McCabe. And this all matters because Fine Gael doesn't have a majority. Uh, it governs as a coalition with some independents who, slightly bizarrely, are in a confidence and supply deal with Fianna Fáil, who are the uh, main opposition party. So, weirdly, uh, 
Fianna, the opposition have the sort of government by uh, the cojones, as it were, and are wait, either side is waiting to blink because Fianna Fáil have tabled a motion of no confidence in the Tornister. So Leverag faces two choices. He either has to sack Francis Fitzgerald, which hitherto he's shown no willingness to do, or uh, it's a Christmas election. Right, now, so having got all of that as the background, the, the reason this is significant for Britain is because Leo Varadkar at the moment is the seen as one of the main blockages for Theresa May getting the deal that she wants in December so that we can move from talking about the divorce yeah. to our future trade arrangements. I mean, he's sufficient progress he's, test. He's playing hardball, uh, as is his foreign minister, Simon Coveney. Uh, and the, the reason the timing of this election matters is because... Uh, the uh, obviously the next EU Council summit is on the fifteenth of December, and this election would be on the twentieth or the twenty-first. And Varadkar already cancelled a, a round of glad handing in Europe last week to deal with this problem at home. So you know that's a whole month effectively of absolutely no attention on the border issue uh, in Brussels from the Irish, who are already you know making this very difficult for London. So what's your sense at the moment? Because it's interesting. Last week we were talking about Germany and. Angela Merkel's troubles there and trying to work out whether or not the prospect of a new election in Germany was good news or bad news for the Brexit process. Do we think that uh, the problems in Ireland mean that Britain's progress will be put on the back burner while Fraga tries to sort it out? Or is the rest of Europe just going to say, look, Ireland, you can't hold this process up. You go and sort out your problems. We're going to move on to the next stage. Well, it's a very interesting question. If you ask people in the DUP, they say, absolutely brilliant. Now you'll finally shut up and we'll get to... Uh, you know, we'll get some progress sped up. Uh, Barnier has come out this morning and sort of, you know, signalled that he might be willing to brook some compromise on the border. He sort of said he would accept a sort of vague uh, statement of principles rather than the, you know, detailed written plan Varadkar has been demanding. But there'll just be sort of even less political appetite in Dublin to accommodate British demands, etc. So it's not necessarily good news, although, you know, effectively we might see a fudge in the next few days anyway. So, Hugo, we thought... We were special because we had a, uh, a minority government sort of limping on from one day to the next. It turns out that everybody in Europe is doing it. Well, this is like this is my my favourite, indeed, only thing I like about the Brexit process is that although it's been set about as this kind of this great severing of Britain from Europe, in the process of it, we've had to pay attention to European politics. And I know <laughs> and we all know far more about Irish politics, German politics, French politics, even Spanish politics than we would have possibly done two years ago. Um, so it, it's almost making you think maybe we've got something in common with these people, <laughs> although not necessarily stable government. Anne, are you someone who would claim to have been an expert in Irish politics before the last week? No, I wouldn't have been an expert. I've been reading a great deal more. And what I'm interested in is this has in common with every single political scandal. It's not what happened. It's the attempt at the cover-up. Mm. It always comes back to the cover-up. And previous to this, we've seen Leo Varadkar as some sort of Dublin's answer to Justin Trudeau, a very glamorous figure who would seem to typify the new Ireland. But indeed, he's showing the slightly unpleasant aspects of the past of the Republic. Will he hang on to his job if he goes for a snap election? Is he assured of, of re-election, or is there somebody waiting in the wings? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. Um, the polling shows that... Well, I mean, let's not trust the polls uh, <laughs> implicitly, but, I mean, it's a, the polling suggests at the moment if there were a snap election, it would uh, reproduce the sort of result we saw in 2016, which is when Ireland had their last election, which was 
effectively a stalemate between Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, uh, and they probably have to cobble together another confidence and supply uh, agreement. But Varadkar has taken a bit of a, a dip in the polls because of his perceived mishandling of this. Um, so yeah, I mean, what I mean, what definitely isn't happening uh, is you know that he isn't as you know slightly more fancifully. Some people here think he's acting in cahoots with Sinn Fein and uh, you know other crazy plans to reunify Ireland. That definitely isn't happening. Uh, but we could. It, it has been talked about. But what we could see after a snap election is that if Sinn Fein end up holding the balance of power in Ireland, you could have Sinn Fein sort of calling the shots in Ireland. You've got the DUP calling the shots uh, in the UK, which makes the idea of getting any deal over the Irish border seem almost impossible. No, exactly. And that's the, that's the one thing people haven't really clocked until now. When the DUP deal was being negotiated, there was a lot of sort of slightly, slightly shrill talk about how, you know, this was going to drive a bulldozer through the Good Friday Agreement and that, you know, no Britain as a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement could never be an honest broker uh, in Northern Ireland ever again or on the issue of the border. But people also forget that the Irish government is a co-guarantor of that agreement as well and that Sinn Féin now stand a fighting chance of, well, if not, they won't be in government because both parties have sort of said absolutely no way, we won't touch you with a barge pole, you're not fit to be in government. But Fianna Fáil certainly are more receptive to the idea of some informal arrangement uh, with Sinn Féin. And because Leo Varadkar is sort of perversely ideological in terms of Irish politics, you know, the main slur you hear about Leo Varadkar in Dublin is not that he is, you know, Fianna Gael politician, they say he's so right-wing, he's a Tory, or he's a Thatcherite, he has a picture of Thatcher uh, on his office wall, which is quite weird in terms of Irish politics, which is <laughs> sort of clustered... clustered it's quite it, odd. Well, clustered in the centre. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the Fianna Fáil politicians I've sort of spoken to in private have said a, a sort of a snap election would be great because it, it ha- has a chance to sort of portray this as a left-right battle in a way that sort of Irish politics has not really seen uh, in the past. And because Sinn Féin are very much a party of the left, uh, you might see some sort of, you know, informal back uh, door arrangement between Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin, especially because Gerry Adams isn't standing again and sort of it's the changing of the guard, the IRA, old boys at the top. Uh, have been sort of shipped out. So, and Hugo, it's been interesting. I've heard about this in Red Box this week. We, we thought when after the election, Theresa May had to rely on the DUP <coughs> to get her sort of government form. We'd hear a lot from the DUP, and actually, for the last six months, we haven't done it. Arlene Foster hasn't been the sort of the Nick Clegg of this government in the way that we expected. But this, but this Irish question and the border question puts them suddenly back in the thick of it. And we saw there conference of the weekend they're sort of flexing their muscles and waving their union jacks well absolutely but i mean it's um i mean in my understanding the dup are very very hostile to the idea of a border uh that's that's right isn't it well they're hostile they're hostile they don't want a hard border yeah. but nor do they want sort of it to be managed east west they don't want any differential arrangement for northern ireland which is frankly the most sensible option mm-hmm. so if you say to say to the dup well you can either have border checks of some kind you know light touch border regime or you can have the border as it is uh, and a border in the Irish Sea every time they'd say well you know put the put the cameras up and you yeah, know we'll as, manage as it with technology as long as it's not in the sea yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean it, it's it seems I mean it's like obviously obviously what happens in Ireland is very important to whether or not we can get an, an agreement but I'm sort of increasingly thinking that maybe it's not that important because we just can't get an agreement yeah I mean there, there's mm-hmm. you know this is um, the whole process of trying to figure out what we do about the border in Ireland it is it is it is trying to to square a circle 
There is there is no solution to this problem, well, and and no amount of goodwill it seems to me can really make one. Well, particularly not when Theresa May has committed to leaving the single market and leaving the customs yeah, union. Yeah, absolutely. There isn't a solution to that, which doesn't involve doing something about the border between Northern Ireland. I mean, I mean the only parallel we've got. We were talking about this the other day. The only parallel we've really got throughout Europe for this kind of situation is probably in Cyprus. But in Cyprus, you've got Northern Cyprus, which is this tiny sort of basket case gangster state, which is already a problem. You've got like, you know, Russian money and influence floods in there and gets into the EU that way. It's already a problem, but it's this tiny, tiny entity. It's not like the sixth largest economy in the world, which Britain would be in the same situation. So it seems to me that whatever really happens in Ireland, this problem, there's no easy, there's no way of solving this problem that I can see. Especially when people like, you know, go over talking about, you know, it's a great opportunity for regulatory divergence and we can be a sort of buccaneering free trade state. Well, I mean, that's fine, but the whole nature of the Irish economy, it's an all-Ireland economy, regulatory divergence is a sort of nightmare for the structure of the Good Friday Agreement and the sort of all-Ireland industries. Can I ask if there's any consequences already for the Irish economy? Because there's so much cross-border trade in everything from potatoes to other goods. Is <laughs> Mainly potatoes, though. That's Ireland's no, but big thing. There is a whole you know, trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very important trade and maybe symbolic of, of Ireland. But what does business think about what's happening in the Republic who is is Varadka the business candidate, or do they see somebody else who they'd like to have in that job, who they think would represent the interests of the of the Irish economy, which remember was a basket case and is now improving. Well, I would say that 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 is what Varadka would say he was doing. He's sticking up for you know Irish businesses and also the Irish citizens, the many Irish citizens in the in the uh, in in Northern Ireland. Um, but I mean, you're right in that sort of you know the milk in a in a bottle of Bailey's yeah. crosses the border sort of six times. Yeah. Guinness mm-hmm. is sort of up between Belfast and Dublin sort of several times before it gets to the the pump in a pub in London. So you know businesses are already very sort of jittery about this, especially ones on the sort of Dublin London nexus of which there of which there are a great many. Uh, but Vraka would say you know I'm the pro business candidate. You know he's always you know glad handing people in uh, you know abroad. Flying the flag for Irish business, and a big part of that is you know maintaining an all island economy. Well, it's fascinating. You've done a good job of explaining the problem. I'm not sure we've got any <laughs> closer to uh, finding the solution. Still to come on this episode, we'll be talking about uh, the problem with interest rates and the problem the Tories have with animals. But we'll be back after this short ad break. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Times Red Box podcast. I'm joined in the studio by Patrick Maguire, Hugo Rifkin, and this is Anne Ashworth. At this time of goodwill to all men, many of the banks have shown themselves distinctly lacking in such a quality. Following the rise in the Bank of England base rate, millions of savers will have assumed that there would be some improvement in their meagre deposit rates. But no, many will receive a rise of 0.05%. The banks involved have not been upfront about this, adding to the growing distrust of financial institutions at a time when we all need to be saving more. The Chancellor should call them out and shame them over their behaviour on this. So, and this, I mean, this is significant. In the, in the wake of the financial crash, interest rates were slashed uh, by the Bank of England and stayed there for much, much longer than people probably expected at the time. Um, they've just moved to put them up 
And you're right, the people who've, who've seen their savings dwindle for years and years would have hoped that that would have been passed on by the banks. Yes, they hoped in vain. I've all kinds of objections to this, and just let me just summarise them. <laughs> the totally disingenuous way in which the banks have dealt with this, dodging our questions, dodging our emails, when we were asking them a fairly direct question, what are you going to do to your savings rates? Hiding the details of the new changes on their website in a place where only somebody who'd worked in Silicon Valley for a decade would be able to find them. <laughs> And also, have they somehow forgotten that we as a nation, as taxpayers, supported these banks through the, through the bailouts? Now, even if you were a bank that didn't get a bailout, you were implicitly supported by that subsidy because from taxpayers. Because the whole system was propped up. And savings are incredibly important. You need to encourage everybody at whatever age they are to put some money aside at a time when readily available pensions are becoming scarcer and at a time when we all need a fund to support us at all times of our lives whether you're a you're a first-time buyer somebody trying to save to even just run away or for a rainy day so the <laughs> banks have been both have been disingenuous and i really do think the chancellor missed an opportunity in his budget to say shame on you guys for not passing on the full base rate increase and what is it? What's behind it? Is it just because they think they can get away with it? So, so that the interest rate set by the Bank of England is put up, so they whack up the mortgage rates, but just hope that nobody notices while they don't do the same to, to interest rates? Well, I had a very illuminating conversation with a guy whose name I won't mention, who's worked in both mutuals, building societies and banks. And he said... And the letters are SOS, squeeze our savers. If you have an opportunity to increase your profit margin by squeezing millions of savers, you're going to take it. And you're going to assume that Anne Ashworth and her team at Times Money won't be on your back about that. You have to hope against hope. But they have really, really annoyed us over this. And we are going to be on this story every week. Hugo, are you surprised that the banks are behaving badly? Well, I mean, no, but it's, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting, um, I don't know, it's an interesting sort of, it's, it's a sort of age-related thing. I mean, the whole concept of having savings from which I get a return <laughs> is just, it's just never really, a, I mean, it, having savings in the first place is, 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 is not really an experience I've, I've ever yet had. But the idea of getting money back just because you've got money in the bank. That's, that's, just, that's a concept that's been lost for an entire working generation. And they have exploited that. Yeah. They have absolutely exploited that. Meanwhile, we've seen quite a big ratcheting up in mortgage rates. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be interested to know, what, is there any good reason why banks are not obliged to transfer um, changes in the base rate into, their, in, into both, both their lending and their borrowing? Once upon a time, there was a sort of de facto agreement that mm. they would always do so. Now, if they can possibly avoid it, they do so. But I do mind the dishonesty. They're, they're trying to cover it up. Yes. Now, Patrick, as the um, token millennial on the panel, um, does the idea of having money in money in a savings account um, providing a monthly return or an annual return is that is that something that's on your radar? I mean, it, I mean, I do have an ISA, um, but I mean, the returns Good. are the returns. I mean, the returns are negligible. <laughs> I, you're going to gold I mean, and I do and I do rate it sort of more often than it's. <laughs> We've all got an ISA like that. But, but that <laughs> is the point of savings that you have something to raid. That is better than having nothing at all. Yes. 
And what what realistically could be done to the banks other than you shaming them every week in the Times? Well, I wonder whether this is the moment when the mutuals, the building societies, who have many of them have passed on the full rise in the base rate to their savers, should come to the fore. We have these institutions that were set up for the purpose of mutual thrift and mutual well-being in the Victorian age, and maybe this is their time to step forward. Because if somebody comes forward and suddenly offered a cracking rate, then you'd hope that you know they'd make they'd end up making their money back because people would rush to. Oh them. yes, so and the... but I think what worries me is this wider distrust of financial institutions. Just at the moment when we need to place greater faith and reliance on them for our futures, as the state retreats, retreats, and retreats from the provision of support in old age, we need financial institutions to provide us with good schemes in which we can save for retirement. And this would make an awful lot of people saying, feel they're awful, I don't want to deal with them, which would be very bad in the long term. Well, as ever, I love having you on, Anne, and I think Redbox podcast listeners always appreciate being told what they should be doing with their money. I think put it in a building society, find a decent building society. Well, we have a very good Best Buys table in Times Money on Saturday, prepared with love. Do take a look at it. There we are, the Times on Saturday. There we go. Right, uh, now we come to a really fascinating story that's happened over the last week, and this is Hugo Rifkin. Uh, Last week, the Conservatives found themselves embroiled in a bizarre row about animal sentience. They were right to take it seriously. Stories about Conservative cruelty to animals went viral at the last election and tap right into a lingering public belief that the nasty party is still as nasty as anything. So, Hugo, I mean, it's slightly easier to explain than what what than Irish politics. But just <laughs> just try to explain what happened with this this vote and how it then took right. off as an example of so, fake news. In my limited and perhaps incorrect understanding, uh, what happened was there was the EU withdrawal bill, and there was a clause. There was a, a the Greens suggested an amendment to the EU withdrawal bill, which would have incorporated into British law an EU requirement that governments recognise that animals are sentient creatures that they have thoughts and can feel pain and deserve a happy inner life um the government decided not to accept this amendment mainly because most of these provisions already exist in the animal welfare act 2006 wish i didn't have to know that uh but i do (laughs) um and so they rejected it fine you know life goes on the the law remains much as it was this is all part of withdrawing from the eu uh however uh various reports principally in the in the independent decided what had happened reported what had happened was the tories have voted that animals cannot feel pain uh this subsequently went massively viral there was a, a story about it that is believed to have been shared several million times almost half a million people signed a petition um condemning the tories for deciding that animals couldn't feel pain at which point the government basically began to panic Michael Gove spilled out across the airwaves. He's the he's the, he's the, the Secretary of State for, for farms and things these days, um, uh, declaring that Tories love animals, aren't mean to them. He ended up saying the completely insane sentence in, in, in a video that he wants a Brexit that works for people and animals too, which just keeps going around <laughs> my head and I can't imagine what it possibly means. I think it's really the maddest thing any politician has said for quite some time. The Tories are terrified of being thought of as people who hate animals. But they're also terrified of this thing which they've only just sort of catching up with is an issue that they're not terribly interested in Mm. or don't think you know the old sort of linton crosby 
political playbook tells them it's not a thing, suddenly catches fire online. And we saw it with the hunting bill. Yeah. We saw it with, you've written in your column this week, um, the ivory, the the ban on ivory sales, which disappeared out of the toy manifesto. And it sort of takes off, sweeps people's Facebook feeds, never really troubles the national front pages. Yeah. And the toys don't really know what to do about it. Well, I mean, the ivory one's completely fascinating because it would, the, the, I think it was, it was, it's either the most shared story about election manifestos this year, or perhaps even the most shared story about the election, was a story from I think Evolve that never got anywhere near the newspapers, which merely noted that while formerly there had been a pledge to ban ivory in conservative manifestos, now there wasn't. They just missed it out. And and this story slightly concocted a, an evil antique dealer conspiracy theory about this big sideboard. Big sideboard had got to our politicians. <laughs> big, big sideboard um, was one of my favourite lines in your. But it, it went massively viral, uh, and um, <laughs> and it was it, it was it was read by seventy eighty thousand people. Um, it wasn't. I mean, it's, it was it was the sort of story that frankly wasn't good enough to get into a newspaper. Yet it still would have been read by 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 hunt by well tens of thousands of people and and could have had massive effect and it is quite hard for the for any party to know how to deal with that sort of thing and what do you make of this what can what can a sort of political party do to react to a story which and he goes right this sort of story would come up at the times the news desk will probably look at it and say well it's not true so we're not going to put it in the paper but at some point we end up then having to report on the thing that we know not to be true reporting on the fact that it's spreading anyway um Every day when I come to work, I remember the adage that was passed on to me when I began my career, which was, the lie is halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. And that was laddie. (laughs) The laddie bit of that phrase was very, very important. (laughs) And you have to remember that there there are certain statements which have a truthiness about them that appeals to something deep inside us and there is always the assumption that somehow Tories are people who who may be animal owning but don't care for, for animals and how the Tory party has forgotten this astounds me and do they not know that there's a huge amount of groundswell of affection towards pets and animals in any form in this country. So how on earth did they put that fox hunting thing into the manifesto? Um, Mm. Nobody, I read in your column this morning, Hugo, that nobody takes responsibility for that. But surely somebody thought it was a good idea. In fact, um, it was reported in the Times earlier this week that it was Theresa May's idea that she insisted. Angela Ledsom tried to say, don't do it. Yeah, uh, when she was environment secretary, and Theresa May insisted. It's complete. Complete. I mean, I, I, th- I think. I mean, I joke about it in the column, but I think it's basically true that there was this idea that the Tories had got into their head that what Brexit meant was that people wanted a right wing conservative party, a socially right wing conservative party. It's a very odd. Th- I mean, you know, we're we're a country that's mad about animals. You know, where there's a there's a there's a monument in in Hyde Park to animals who died in war, which is a thing I've never been. I mean, I'm not going to see it and be grateful. It's nonsense. <laughs> but we, we we love this kind of thing. Um, and um, and how that and I think the Tories have repeatedly made a mistake, just underestimated the the sheer sort of how the a, a sentimental love of animals just comes right up against this vague feeling that Tories are bastards and it just doesn't go well for them. Right. So what you're saying there that the whole that. 
people in the Tory party believe that Brexit was a vote for a sort of Nancy Mitford, England, <laughs> where the I mean, toff, I, I sort of think toffs, that as well, to the, be honest. Uh, the toffs went fox hunting and everybody else doffed their caps. So it's what we voted for is sort of late stage Downton Abbey. Well, less of the we, but yes, I think that's about right. Less of the we, yeah. I mean, the, the, the late stage but, Downton Abbey but, is when they were just going about that cottage hospital and it completely yes, but, lost its way. Yes, but it, is that what it's all about, that we, that people, 52%, voted for a Britain that actually never existed? Patrick, one of the interesting things about this is that so often you can trace a problem that Theresa May's premiership has created back to them wanting to not do the sort of thing that David Cameron did. So David Cameron did an awful lot of this. He he helped uh, with some lambing. He, you know, he'd be pictured feeding pigs and... Uh, all sort of touchy-feely stuff. All though. touchy-feely stuff, you know, walk it, you know, to try and soften that impression. And Theresa May won't do that. Anything which which is seen as a bit too touchy-feely and David Cameron-ish. Well, the, the, what Cameron did very well was convince... Uh, people who would be sort of demographically sort of predisposed to to vote Labour uh, feel like it was safe to vote for the Tories, right? Uh, and now, sort of demography has created a situation by, and also sort of the nature of Corbyn's appeal to young people is that there's a sort of ticking time bomb in terms of young voters at the next election for whom, you know, because maybe they get their news from sort of the sort of un sort of filtered the wild se- the, the seamy the seamy yeah. underbelly of you know uh, people's Facebook news feeds right rather than you know esteemed organs like the Times and for a lot of people given the nature of Corbyn given the nature of May given the nature of the information that is out there that's playing to you know very simple images of what each party is about the next election for a lot of people will be a straightforward fight between good good and evil right I mean I mean that sounds hyperbolic but for a lot of people you know Corbyn is you know Messianic and, and May and, you know, any Tory is, you know... She's Darth Vader. Really wi- yeah, yeah. Wi- wicked and bad. And no amount of sort of, you know, witty tweets from James Cleverley and Johnny Mercer will do anything to dispel that, right? But it was also telling last week that the um, not only do we have the sort of fake news spreads massively online read by millions of people, and the Tories think the answer is Michael Gove on the Today programme <laughs> at ten past eight. Or, you know, Instagrams of, you know, Karen Bradley backstage at the Tory conference. Exactly right. And then and then um, their their solution to how to spread this online was giving every Tory MP to tweet the link to the written ministerial statement on the gov.uk website. And that was sort of... Well, that's that sort of problem sorted, and they, they seem they just can't seem to get a handle on on how to to deal with this internet business. I mean, they did relatively well at the the animal rebuttal, if that's a weird phrase, but you know what I mean. They, 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 did, they did, they did, you know, they did unleash a lot of people, and a lot of stuff happened. Look, something that's very interesting about this, though, sort of the sort of bigger than than the animal thing, is I'm told, I'm pretty sure that the 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 promise of a free vote on fox hunting. That was in the last Tory manifesto yeah, as well. And the, and the one before. It was and in the 2010. One before. And, and almost, I, I, and I, I increasingly wonder if maybe quite a lot of the problems that Theresa May had during the election goes back to the idea that we'd almost had two elections where there'd been an assumption that nobody was going to get a majority. Yeah. And so you could make all, kind of, all kinds of pledges, a referendum, uh, a free vote on fox hunting, whatever. And you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have to do anything you didn't want to do because you were going to be in coalition. There'd always be some excuse not to. And and so it's almost as if the party's got out of the habit of preparing for majority government. I think that also coupled with the fact that David Cameron put the fox hunting vote in in 2010 to try and reassure traditional Tories mm. that he wasn't all wind farms and <laughs> recycled trainers and all that sort of stuff. That was his sort of nod to traditional yeah. Tory land. 
but then all that because people didn't have that concern about Theresa May, it just looked like it was reinforcing a, yeah. an impression about her. Um, and it's difficult to know what to what to do about it. I, I know there was a it, there's a new book out. There's lots of books out, but in one of the new books about the election campaign, there's a story about how they they talked about getting Theresa May a dog. She was going to get a, a chocolate brown Labrador that was going to apparently soften her image and because she, she basically really doesn't like Larry the cat and so she thought she'd get a dog um, and they, she didn't get one in the end because she was concerned about who was going to walk it when she was away at uh, international summits which at least shows a certain amount of um, you know personal responsibility surely she could have found someone somebody could have done it someone yeah Philip couldn't Green. Philip have walked the what, dog what Hammond yeah. Yeah. no well I'd oh, Philip. Yeah. Yes. yeah well Priest Patel's free you know I mean <laughs> I know but it, I'm not sure if you could take a dog to me as well that easily <laughs> <laughs> I'm just popping out of the dog <laughs> the new Israeli ambassador yeah uh, well, um, I think that's all we've got time for uh, this week. As ever, you can sign up to my um, morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox where I round up all of the um, day's political news with some jokes and gossip and that sort of thing as well. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your Android device. But for now, from Anne Ashworth, Patrick McGuire, Hugo Rifkin and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.